Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It was Saturday, the 7th of October, 1995, and the Centenary World Cup commenced at Wembley Stadium, with England beating the ARL-only Australian team 20-16. It was a tournament which kicked off in defiance of a crumbling international body, courtroom drama, intercontinental mudslinging and a largely disillusioned public as the game limped towards the conclusion of its 100th year. Three weeks later, the tournament ended in triumph, both for the Australian team and for the game as a whole, carrying the promise of a bright new era of international football. It was a promise that went unfulfilled. This is the best of the rest, the 22nd chapter in the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? I'm fantastic. How are you? Good. We're getting very close to the end of this season of the Super League War. That is both the 1995 season and the season of our series. So two big events left in this season. The one we're covering tonight is the 1995 World Cup. Uh, I should say we're doing this out of sequence. So basically... The last chapter in this season is going to be a recap of the 1995 season. We're doing that out of sequence just because it makes a nice little bookend with uh, the first chapter in our story. So if anyone was wondering why we're messing up the chronology, that's the reason. So just to start off, uh, I want to get some of your thoughts or memories on this World Cup. Yeah, it's interesting. Watching the games again sort of changed my perspective on it. I mean, you know my thoughts on having the rep teams that haven't got the best players available, but watching the games again, it was kind of a feel-good thing for me watching it, so it was interesting. It's funny because this chapter is in many ways a companion piece to our Queenslander episode, obviously with the Super League rep band leading to the same, you know, plucky band of 'er ne'er-do-wells defying the odds to win it all, but... It wasn't quite that bad as the Australian no, side. Yeah. It was still pretty good. <laughs> exactly. There were some obviously world-class players in that side. The funny thing is, for me, there's more of an asterisk on these test matches or World Cup matches, whatever you want to call them, than there is the Origin series. I feel like in State of Origin, there's always a place for players where you're scratching your heads that this guy played four Origins. Like the Australian test team should be unassailable. And... You look at some of the names in this squad, and I don't know, to me there's more of an asterisk on this than there is the Origin series. To me it's equal. It's just when you undermine the purity of something so great, it's just annoying. But yet again, they come out on top um, miraculously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and to me the big difference between this and Queenslander is that although there are some really positive elements to this story, so if you look at it from a global perspective, this was the first World Cup that opened up to 10 teams. You had the rise of these minnows, you know, some unexpected success stories coming from the Pacific Islands and Wales. Then individually, some compelling narratives with 
the coronation of Brad Fittler, the arrival of Andrew Johns as a superstar. So you do have all these feel-good stories mixed into it. But coming at the end of this year of negativity, seeing this beacon for rugby league, international football as the future of rugby league, just then instantly being squandered because of all the Super League idiocy, it just leaves a really bad taste at the end of it all. Well, I'm sure we'll get into it, but just the acrimony and vitriol in the lead-up is just despicable. (laughs) It really is. Yeah. So let's start right there. And the World Cup was staged in October, but this took a lot of planning before 1995 and throughout 1995, a lot of toing and froing with the, the possibility that the whole thing would be scrapped. So in late April, less than a month after April Fool's Day, the international board met and basically took every other agenda point off the table as by that point there was nothing left to talk about. England and New Zealand had already signed with Super League and suddenly this international board was meeting with no real reason to meet besides the World Cup. So the one resolution they made at that meeting was that the World Cup would continue. The whole international thing is just, yeah, it's so murky. Like the international boards, considering Australia and England were the only only ones with any real pull. It's always been a toothless organisation and remains so to this day. Agreed. And one of the big talking points from the ARL side at this point in April was the potential end of international football. You had Ken Arthurson lamenting the death of the tradition of kangaroo tours and the possibility of test matches being finished. His quote was, My overwhelming feeling is one of sadness. There is an immense amount of tradition involved in kangaroo tours of England and British Lions tours of Australia. The Rocks Drift Test, the Battle of Brisbane, Battle of Leeds, all gone. And I can understand Arthurson's sadness But there's something about it that's also illustrative of the ARL's position. They were clinging on to a tradition in kangaroo tours that were naturally arriving at their use-by date for no reason other than tradition. Yeah, I would have more sympathy for that point of view if he didn't do everything in his power to undermine the World Cup (laughs) afterwards. Yeah, exactly. And so there's a real irony in the fact that all this was happening at the same time that the World Cup was expanding for the first time to something resembling a real World Cup. So for most of the history of the World Cup, stretching back to 1954, it had been a four-team competition, then becoming a five-team competition with the entry of Papua New Guinea in the 80s. So this was the first time that we could legitimately call it a World Cup. Even then it was stretching it, but we did. (laughs) And a couple of months later, after the Pacific Islands had signed with Super League, Ken Arthurson basically ridiculed it, saying, we won't be jumping off North Head because we can't play against Tonga or Western Samoa. See, that to me is just unforgivable. Yeah. We're doing all this work to try and promote the game, apparently, inverted commas, and he says something like that. I understand his anger, but Jesus Christ. So yeah, you can forgive it as heat of the moment stuff, but it reaffirms the notion that the ARL was out of step in terms of international football. They cared about international football, but only the tradition of Australia versus England. Like go back to New Zealand. One of their big points was that the ARL was always giving them short shrift and didn't really take any responsibility for development or a regular test calendar, all the rest of it. It seems that the ARL just didn't see the potential of their own product. To quote you, is one of the most illustrative points on why Super League had to happen in one way or another. 
They're just behind the times. Exactly. And where the cynicism comes in is we've discussed it already. It's not like News Limited were coming in because they were, you know, worried that we were squandering Pacific Island talent or, you know, the game wasn't, (laughs) you know, that had nothing to do with it. But the fact is that the ARL had a chance to take this aspect of the game more seriously and it just wasn't a concern. And we can look now, um, 25 years later, and see the results of investing in that talent. But I guess that's one of the enduring sadnesses for me thinking about this 1995 World Cup is we're basically not far past that point now. Like it took 20 years from this, you know, promise, this bright, you know, new opportunity for us to actually get back to making the World Cup a big event and seeing the potential for so-called minnows as a, you know, future of international football. We've gone through it in every history corner to date. For every one step forward the game takes, it takes five backwards whilst discharging firearms into its feet. (laughs) Yeah, in every aspect. Uh, So from the outset, it was clear that there weren't going to be any Super League players in the Australian team. This became an ongoing source of tension between the international board from the Super League side of things and the ARL. Let me ask you before we go into it, where do you stand on the decision of the ARL to stand firm on banning the players? I mean, my personal view at the time, being a Canberra fan especially, was just outraged. I was incandescent with rage, <laughs> but uh, looking back, I can see now, you know, they had to sort of do it in terms of the war, but if Arthurson had been so magnanimous as to allow the Super League players to play, I think it would have helped his legacy a great deal. It would have, but I also think it just doesn't make any sense. It goes back to Wayne Bennett getting criticized for not coaching Queensland in 95. Like, yeah, I agree with Arco's legacy. And, you know, Morris Lindsay made the false equivalence of saying, well, Phil Clark signed with the ARL and we'll still be picking him. Not quite the same thing. <laughs> but um, it would have turned Arco into Gandhi if he did that. Yeah. And I just realistically, I think whether it was right or wrong, the ARL basically in their pitch to the players where they said that if you wanted to play rep footy, you have to be with us. They kind of put themselves into a corner. But don't talk to me about being game first when you're really home side first. Yeah. But so as ultimately frustrating as it all was, there was some humorous back and forth between Ken Arthurson and Morris Lindsay throughout the year as the situation devolved. So when Morris Lindsay basically demanded uh, the A-roll pick Super League players, Ken Arthurson said... How ironic the Super League countries should demand we pick Super League players when they've signed contracts stating they will only play test matches from 1996 onwards against countries from the Murdoch League. If ever there is a case of double standards, this is it. We will pick a team in the best interest of the ARL and it will win the World Cup. If the presidents of the other nations want to have a side bet with me, they can get on any time. <laughs> now, I don't mind what he's saying in the best interest of the ARL, but when he starts saying the best team possible, that's when it annoyed me. Yeah. And we'll get into that further when we get to the actual picking of the team. On this toing and froing, one of the options that was on the table was ARL players being excluded and the possibility of an all-Super League team going in place of the ARL. That's very interesting. How do you think that would have been received back here? I think it would have been fine for the World Cup, but I think Australia would have switched off. I think that is a big reason why ultimately it didn't happen. I think the ARL were in a much stronger position than... Morris Lindsay and the English League were in terms of being able to 
stand firm on that issue. I think if the other leagues had pushed the point, the whole thing may have fallen over. I think it would have been a very bad look for the World Cup. In the end, it was better to go ahead in that state than not at all. And you could kind of see Morris Lindsay making these threats, but I think in his heart, he never would have allowed the situation to get to that. I'll just read one impassioned plea. This was talking about the prospect of the ARL being excluded. That would be dreadful. That would break my heart. But you can't have one nation holding a gun at the heads of all the others. The ARL says the game belongs to the people. We'll let them truly put that statement up front. Let the best players battle it out for the World Cup. It's the centenary World Cup, for God's sake. What right have we got as administrators to say who can or cannot play? It would be almost a heinous crime for any administrator to dictate that certain players can't play because they've chosen a certain path in their careers. I think it's a very reasonable plea. And the other aspect of it was that as the hosts, Morris Lindy and the English board had to also consider ticket sales, you know, keeping the sponsors happy, all the rest of it. And they were talking about sluggish ticket sales, you know, which, let's be fair, could have been an issue in any situation. But when you do have the promise of some of the best players in the world not going, that's obviously going to be a detriment. Yeah, it would have cost them a few bums on seats, there's no question. But on the plus side, given that rugby league is not a massive sport over there, Northern England enclave, basically, (laughs) it didn't affect it as much as it would here. No, yeah. The other possibility that was floated, and this would never have happened, but just think about how interesting it would have been if it did, was the possibility of a separate invitation being extended to Australian Super League players. So you'd have Australia Super League and Australia ARL both competing at the World Cup. I would have been disgusted by that, same as I was when Australia A played in the cricket. Yeah, exactly. Because I was so into Australia A at the time, and now looking back, I'm like, that's not a good look to have Australia and Australia A meeting. It really appealed to kids in in the day. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But, I mean, they already had an Australia A. That that was the Australian side. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, basically no one wins out of that scenario. If you want to honour the centenary of rugby league, you don't put two Australian teams against each other in the World Cup. (laughs) Very true. And and I think that's why it was ultimately, I think, a journalist concoction rather than something that was ever debated at any board level. It just wouldn't have happened. But it was funny reading all the talk about it as a possibility. You know what's great about the acrimony part of it is Lindsay and Arco, we've discussed them before, just two dogged administrators from the old school. Exactly. And I think because of that, as grubby as it got over the next couple of years, and the slanging match was almost continuous between the two of them, but there was always this mutual respect. They would always preface it with you know, Arthurson talking about his respect for Lindsay and Lindsay talking about how he wasn't trying to hurt Arthurson's feelings. That's the part I love about it. It was all politicking, but it was brutal, wasn't it? And I don't know, Graham Carden, the boss of the New Zealand League, I don't really know, you know, his character. What about him was so disdainful to Arco, but Arco did not have that same respect and came out publicly and on a number of occasions and said, I have all the respect in the world for Morris Lindsay despite this. Graham Carden is someone I'll never deal with again. So, But there's a, a litany of evidence that the ARL treated New Zealand like a redheaded stepchild. Yeah. We just saw how they, what they thought of the Pacific Islands. I mean, yeah. can you blame them for going? No, exactly. It's pretty clear that the ARL were going to pick an ARL team. Super League decided to challenge this in court. And so five Canberra players, Laurie Daly, Bradley Clyde, Ricky Stewart, Brett Mullins and Steve Walters were seen as the perfect candidates to test the legality of the ARL excluding Super League players. 
So they launched an action against the ARL, uh, and this was played out throughout late August into September. So while the semifinals were ongoing, there was also this court action deciding on whether or not Super League players could legally be excluded. I was just thinking at that time as a team, just like thinking about the 94 tour, my all-time favourite test side, and that, that was just a magical squad, that 94 squad. And seeing that the Anzac tests or the earlier test in the year with the ARL players, it was just so flat. And yeah. I thought it was a disgrace. And then I, when they went to court, I was just going, well, if they win this, they're going to get their spot and it's going to be fine. I was, I was buoyant. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that New Zealand test series, which Australia won easily 3-0. But it was so flat is the right word for it, wasn't it? There was just so little excitement about test football in the midst of all this. New Zealand wasn't the powerhouse they are now either back then. Yeah, it wasn't a very strong New Zealand team. But so the court case was interesting in some of the revelations it brought out. And again, this was along with the Filthy Four case. This is where you're seeing some of the behind the scenes skullduggery being played out in public for the first time. Can I just say that rugby league in court is never, ever a good thing? <laughs> uh, ever. There's never been a good incidence of rugby league being in court. I would say for the comedy value, rugby league players, coaches, administrators in the witness stand does... <laughs> uh, Wearing those boxy suits. <laughs> so that there is some gold that comes out of it. Uh Speaking of boxy, Steve Boxhead Walters, one of my favourite moments of him on the witness stand was when the judge told him that he was free to go before leaving. He said, you beauty. <laughs> Can you imagine his little cheeky grin? <laughs> and Phil Gould was called to the witness stand, uh, largely on the basis of the fact that he had said he would resign from the post as New South Wales coach if Super League players were chosen. Uh, and when it was put to him that this was a threat, Phil Gould said, I know nothing about politics. I always thought a threat was, I'm going to punch you in the face or something. <laughs> Is there a more footballer response than that? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, and another interesting thing to me was Ian Roberts was called forward to appear. And he was in court just before the first semi-final that Manly played and was on the stand and in his words, I was badgered for 15 minutes about Steve Menzies and Jeff Toovey. He was just trying to put me in an awkward position. I said, with the injuries he's had, Jeff wouldn't be in my test side if I was a selector. As soon as I got to training, I explained to Jeff what I'd said. So in the end, Super League won the case and the five Canberra players were ruled to be eligible for selection. So the judge concluded that the ban was a restraint of trade because it restricted their ability to utilise their professional playing talents, attempted to limit the freedom of the players to contract with Super League or any other organisation, and was an attempt to persuade the five to limit their rugby league solely to the ARL-run competition. When that came through that, that ruling, I was jubilant. I thought, there's no way they're going to ignore the Supreme Court. <laughs> and yeah, it's you wonder how, like, I was the same going like, well, they didn't pick any Super League players. So does Ken Arthurson go to jail now? How does this work? Like, you know, like the ruling's made, but there's no Super League players picked. Yeah, I don't know what the legal thing with that is. Maybe we can ask Kyle Katasi this commercial law extraordinaire, but I mean, I assume they'd have to bring an action claiming contempt of court. Yeah, so in this respect, it was an empty victory for Super League because although there was the ruling that the ARL had to consider 
Super League players proving the case that players had been omitted because of their allegiance to Super League would have been hard to be tested in court. So I think the ARL lawyers would have nutted all that sort of thing out. So Ken Arthurson's public statement was, all players, including Super League players, have been considered. And this is the side the selectors have come up with. They've taken legal advice and believe their position is correct. And then it was suggested to Arthurson that any 20 experts would pick a team which included some Super League players. Arthurson said, I don't know if they would. The selectors certainly wouldn't because this is the team they've named. <laughs> He's such a dick in this year. He really, he really is. <laughs> <laughs> Just obstinate. But uh, what would he have done if the legal advice was to pick Super League players? Would he just flat out ignored it? I mean, the ARL's taken legal advice and has done exactly what Ken Arthurson wants. Well, having a legal background yourself, you're familiar with the concept of precedence. And what works in the ARL's favour was the historical precedence of incumbency. <laughs> so what the ARL were able to do was say, well, I watched the State of Origin series. Some of the players went all right in that. I watched Australia beat New Zealand 3-0 and the players did a pretty good job. So therefore, my most recent memory is ARL players doing a good job and beating all comers. This is where it falls down. It doesn't pass the smell test, right? So it's any reasonable person can see, yes, they went all right, but they excluded all the previous players in the team, went forever and a day, incumbency meant something. They excluded all the Super League players. You can see that. There's a record of that. It's not true what they're saying. This is that there is a restraint of trade there. Especially when Australian selector Arthur Bateson broke ranks and had this to say of his decision. They went to work for a bloke who gave up his Australian citizenship because it suited him. They knew the consequences when they signed with Super League, and now it seems they're saying they weren't aware of the consequences. Nothing from Artie there about how good Danny Moore did against New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Trying to keep six former players with the same story in the media is impossible. Uh, and that's true on the Super League side as well, with Super League board member Mal Meninga coming out in the aftermath and saying this. They played very well against New Zealand this year and gave them a fair hiding. So it's going to be very difficult to leave those players out of the side. Now, is this guy just <laughs> gaff prone? It must have improved since then. But I mean, in that era, the guy was just a gaff machine. <laughs> he's working for Super League and he's, he's sprigging the air alive. Uh, Graham Langland style. I've become so fascinated about Mal Meninga's public speaking career <laughs> since we've started this. I think he's just brutally honest. That's what I think he is. Yeah. So yeah. like he genuinely thought that. So rather than tell the, the company who's paying you the line, he just said what he thought. Yeah. <laughs> Which but, I admire in, in some ways. You know, creating scandals in the Suva Times. And... That quote was the most shocking out of all of them. All the vitriol, that one there. <laughs> and so, so basically what it all, bo all boiled down to is it doesn't pass the smell test. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows that. Super League players were excluded. Uh, legal expert Bradley Clyde came out and said definitively the ARL were in contempt of court. But he's he's right, you know, <laughs> like they were. But the point is, it still needed to be proven in court. That was going to be difficult to do. The second issue was it was going to potentially require an injunction which would stop the ARL team from getting on the plane, potentially leaving Australia out of the World Cup, leaving the World Cup a team short. So basically, Super League got the victory, but it was unenforceable. 
I think that the legal advice for the area would have been just that. You're probably going to lose, but they won't have the balls to shut down the team. Yeah. Let's go ahead. But I think it's quite magnanimous of the Super League people not to do that because... Yeah, well, that's the thing. They could have quite easily done it after the fact. Let the ARL have their you know little victory party winning the World Cup and then take them to court. And so regardless, the Super League players were excluded. There were some mixed feelings about that. So you had someone like Wendell Saylor coming out and saying it was torture watching the World Cup, you know, thinking about where he was in his career, just coming on to his peak. You know, he still hadn't played State of Origin at that point. On the other side of it, Laurie Daly, despite the court action, didn't actually mind how it all played out, saying it wasn't a big bother really. By the time the World Cup came around, I'd adjusted to the way things were. I didn't feel like I should be there. It was second nature. It was like missing out because of an injury. He had the emptiest brain back then. Yeah. But it was also the first break he'd had from football in a couple of years, so it was kind of a blessing. Uh, Probably my favorite quote from a player came from Ricky Stewart. Vitriol seems to be the word of this episode, so uh, this is vitriolic. Uh, this is on Ken Arthurson. Are you surprised? Are you feeling surprised by that fact? <laughs> <laughs> so this was Ricky Stewart on Ken Arthurson. My house against his. I'm sick of him shooting his mouth off. This whole thing would be over now if it wasn't for Arco. Every time it comes close to a compromise, he opens his mouth and blows it. But this is too much. You can only stand so much. Tell him I'll put my house against his. He picks a team and I pick a team and we'll see who's best. Come on, guys, we're not playing for sheep stations. <laughs> so let's get to the squad. I'll just read out the names of the players picked. Wayne Bartram, Tim Brasher, Mark Carroll, Mark Coyne, Brett Dallas, Jim Dimmick, Brad Fittler, David Gillespie, Paul Harrigan, Terry Hill, John Hoppawati, Matthew Johns, Andrew Johns, Nick Kosseff, Paul McGregor, Steve Menzies, Danny Moore, Billy Moore, Adam Muir, Robbie O'Davis, Dean Pay, Aaron Raper, Jason Smith, Jeff Toovey, Rod Wishart. Still not bad, but it's not the 94 squad, is it? You've got a handful of world-class players. You've got a handful of players who would become world-class players. Mm. And then you've got the Aaron Rapers. And... I feel really sorry for Aaron Raper. We've discussed it before. He's been treated so badly by selectors. Yeah, yeah. So there were a few notable omissions there through injury. Greg Florimo, David Fairley, and Jim Sedaris were injured. Uh, Gary Larson actually withdrew because of personal reasons. Mm. And then you had some just omissions. The most notable of those was Brad Mackay, who he was really dudded by the ARL in 95. He really was. I mean, I'm not arguing he should or shouldn't have been on that plane, but the only Western Reds player to not sign with Super League, still a class player who'd played Origin the year before, had played Test for Australia, didn't get a look in at Origin time, omitted from this team. You can kind of see him being just forgotten about because he was all the way over in Perth. Definitely. And his quote on it was, I'm starting to feel as though my loyalty is going one way. Yep, couldn't agree more, poor guy. He has every right to feel aggrieved. Yep, but... To his credit, he was magnanimous about the players chosen ahead of him, saying, I take cold comfort in realising the selectors have picked three great locks. Dimmick was a Clive Churchill medalist, Kosef was among Manly's best in the grand final, and Billy Moore's had a tremendous season. What can I do? Sure, it's hurtful to be overlooked, but I can't begrudge the players who got there ahead of me. Yeah, those three, you can't argue with it, that's for sure. All great players. Yeah. Uh, The other interesting one was Gavin Allen, who was basically said, you have to sign with the ARL if you want to be considered. So unlike Origin, where 
not signing with Super League was enough. This time he was given an ultimatum, which he chose to ignore. Yeah, I don't think Gavin Allen was going to be the key piece to that squad either, but it's interesting. No, no, of course not. Just an interesting side note, though, that he was forced to make that decision. Yeah. So summing up the team, Wally Lewis put it pretty well. Let's be honest, it's not the best. (laughs) Cantankerous Wally was the straight shooter. But all that talk from Wally and everywhere else, what it gave the Australian team was that nobody believes in us mentality. Are you describing a siege mentality there? Or? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the very same. So I'll read this. Uh, this is Daniel Lane in, in the Rugby League Week. Australia's Rugby League World Cup team used the jibes and jokes as a tangible part of their World Cup motivation. The Australian team closed ranks through the World Cup, playing on the siege <laughs> mentality fostered by coach Bob Fulton. <laughs> Yeah, so I think this would have been a Waco-level siege mentality. Fulton's David Koresh. (laughs) I think this would have been a deliberate step that the ARL took to play on the traditional side of it. So they had custom blazers made for the players to wear, an equivalent of a baggy green cap for them as well. So they were bringing back these traditions. So Chimpy Bush was out in the press saying, I think it's a great statement to bring the caps back for the 100th anniversary of Rugby League's birth. There's something defiant in that as well when you've got this shiny new Super League for the RL to go back to the past and, and have them wearing blazers and caps to you know head over for the tournament. It's a beautiful touch for the centenary. I, I love that. Let's move on from that and talk about the centenary, the fact that this was, on top of everything else, this was the 100th anniversary of Rugby League. And like, how's Rugby League's luck that what should have been this culmination of a year-long celebration is mired down in all of this? The same year that Rugby League turned 100, we've got the Super League war, we've got Rugby Union going professional and threatening to end it all. I don't think there's a more apt description of the saying, you make your own luck. (laughs) But in preparation for this, a lot of my sources for this chapter have come from English newspapers and most of those London-based. And in the wake of rugby union going professional, which remember in the Northern Hemisphere, that wasn't ratified until late August. So it's still very fresh in the minds of sports writers in England you know, heading into October as the World Cup's about to begin. There were quite a number of articles discussing whether we needed rugby league or whether we needed two codes anymore. Probably more than at any point before or since, at this specific time, the idea of the two codes coming together, that word again, fait accompli, it wasn't (laughs) quite there, but it was a very real prospect. Rugby union was a real threat back then. So it's not the build-up you want to your World Cup where it's about to start and people are questioning not just whether the tournament will be a success, but whether your game actually needs to continue. Yeah, shocking. (laughs) And coming at what should have, and I would argue, as it all played out, did become a high and something to really celebrate, which was the expansion of the World Cup to 10 teams. So the full lineup of teams, you had Australia, New Zealand, England, Wales, Western Samoa, Tonga, Papua New Guinea, Fiji, South Africa, and France. Mm. And so it was being talked about as the most important tournament the game had ever staged. And I would argue that it is. It absolutely is the single most important tournament in rugby league history. I agree. It could have gone so pear-shaped. Big statement, which I just thought of on the spot. So (laughs) So I, I think one of the big reasons that it did manage to to come through 
was the idea that, okay, there's been a lot of disharmony over the past year. We know that there's more to come, but how about for three weeks? Let's just concentrate on the football. So in late August, Ken Arthurson talked about a fax he sent to Morris Lindsay saying, I told him I thought it was about time we both stopped the slanging match. And I told him the only thing we should be doing was getting on with making the World Cup a success and that any differences of opinion should be settled privately. I'm not saying that what has happened has been all one-way traffic. There's been plenty of return fire at our end. We haven't said the nicest things in the world about them. That's for sure. (laughs) And I think Morris Lindsay says it best. So this was on the eve of the World Cup starting. He said, The Super League issue will be left outside the boundaries of this competition. The athletes will now do the talking. Very magnanimous. And maybe surprisingly, that is largely how it played out. So you even had the ARL's chief attack dog, Bozo, managing to keep his mouth shut and essentially not answering questions about Super League, just focusing on the football. And I I think you absolutely needed that spirit for the tournament to become the success that it did. Yeah, I agree. It's, um, It's very rugby league, old school rugby league administration that I like it. That's not to say that that it wasn't free of negativity, especially in the build-up. There were a few sticking points. One of those sticking points was that Morris Lindsay wouldn't allow warm-up matches before the (laughs) tournament started, which when you consider that the rugby league in in England was still a winter sport then, meant that some Australian Southern Hemisphere players hadn't played in two months before the World Cups started while England were mid-season. So there was a clear advantage there. That's just some old school rugby league skullduggery though. I like that. You can't knock that. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and faced with that criticism, Morris Lindsay fired back with, we all know that Bobby Fulton is a bully. He may be a hero in Australia, but he's nothing in Britain, even though he was born here. Sorry, Bobby, on this occasion, you'll have to be a human being like the rest of us and obey the rules. <laughs> Um, Morris Lindsay, uh, some great quotes over the course of this year. He's uh, a real character. Yeah, wonderful uh, rugby league caricature. Just uh, I love these guys that love the game, you know, not afraid to, to knuckle it out in the boardroom. Yeah, yeah. But beyond this slaying match, there were a number of other issues leading to a pessimistic outlook for the fortunes of the World Cup. So one of those was in poor sales in the lead up. So... A day before the test, there were reports that only 20,000 tickets had been sold for the opening match at Wembley. That's a legitimate worry because even though England wasn't known for giant rugby league crowds, they always pack Wembley for a test match versus Australia. Yeah, exactly. So the Financial Times reported the most imaginative promotion so far looks like the offer of two free pints of ice-cold lager with every ticket sold. (laughs) It's very rugby league. So... That was a promotion by the owners of Wembley Stadium, not the Rugby League. Uh, and they distributed flyers offering the promotion around Earl's Court, the you know haven for Australian backpackers. So I think that did a good job in boosting attendance. Well, the ice cold part gives it away. It was Aussie targeted. <laughs> if they said um, two pints of real ale, Bishop's Finger or Old Speckled yeah. Hen, that was the English promotion. <laughs> 
So these poor sales led to questions as to whether Wembley was the right venue and whether they should have concentrated on the strongholds and not worried about it. Um, but I, I think ultimately it had to be Wembley. It's like a question of legitimacy. Wembley in that era, the old Wembley, it's not something you can turn your back on. No. There was plenty of time for Northern England matches. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we'll get to it when we discuss the game, but they got 40,000 in the end for that first match, I think, along with the two free pints. I think there were a lot of free tickets distributed. But regardless, it was a respectable figure that went some way to vindicating the decision. There also seemed to be little enthusiasm for the tournament itself. But if we had one now, if we had a World Cup now, there'd be little enthusiasm for it in England. Yeah, and I mean, even in, in Australia, like we saw poor ticket sales for games in, in the last World Cup here. Like it's, it's something we've historically had to battle with. There was the idea that the promotion of the World Cup had been substandard with reports that there was as much advertisement for the Huddersfield show as there was for the matches they were going to be hosting during the World Cup. Why would they not promote it after all this organisation? <laughs> And especially in Huddersfield, the birthplace of rugby league in its centenary. Yeah. <laughs> so they actually angered people in Huddersfield by pulling out of a grand carnival they'd planned to host there, which was tied into the opening of their new stadium, and instead putting it on in October at Wembley as part of the World Cup celebrations. Morris Lindsay's quote was, we haven't pulled out of Huddersfield at all. All we've done is move the parade because there were too many counter-attractions. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess the Huddersfield show <laughs> high among them. Being from Newcastle with the Newcastle show, I can really relate to the Huddersfield show. <laughs> Drawing power, don't worry about that. We've got Brad Fitley here, but we've got the prize for the best Jersey cow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the other big issue was a lack of press coverage with which, I mean, I was surprised at how much coverage I found in the London newspapers. So Fleet Street loved rugby league tournaments uh, and series against Australia at the start until they lost. Yeah, 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 exactly. So maybe that English victory in the first game was necessary to build interest. So turning to the day itself, the opening of the Rugby League World Cup, they were determined to put on a show and a show they put on getting Diana Ross in to seeing her latest smash hit, Take Me Higher. We both watched uh, Diana Ross's performance. What did you make of it? Now, I'm a bit biased because I love the Supremes and I love Diana Ross. I found it odd that she would sing the new song and not like upside down on one of the big smash hits, you know, but um, I suppose that was part of the deal. But uh, she did her best, I'll put it that way. <laughs> Morris Lindsay's quote was, Diana Ross is an all-time great. It's a tremendous coup for rugby league and shows that we're a game that really means business. <laughs> if you mean business, how, how about a stage for Miss Ross? <laughs> she comes out looking amazing in her 50s, mind you. Comes out in an old um, model T-style car and then on foot under the ground, blown by a wind with some local school kid-style dancers, rugby league-esque. And apart from Diana Ross, who... Yeah, did her best. I don't think it was all her fault, but an underwhelming opening ceremony. Morris Lindsay admitted that it wasn't the event that he'd envisioned. His blunt words, it was garbage. I spent £156,000, half of which went on Diana Ross, who just about saved the show. Uh, and on that afternoon's entertainment, he said, I'm paying £80,000 for this afternoon show. Brass bands and the Horsley male voice choir singing Jerusalem. Great stuff. I hope it works this time. 
the age-old problem with rugby league and entertainment. I mean, I don't know where I stand on this, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm up in the air. Like, I do like when we have a big name at a, a rugby league event, but if we didn't have it, would it really matter? Like, if they just went kickoffs in five minutes <laughs> and kicked off? I agree with you at heart because it seems that whatever you do, the sound's appalling. There's, you know, people saying we should have got Jimmy Barnes. The other half is saying, why are we getting Jimmy Barnes again? Yeah. It doesn't matter. We're there for the football. But part of it is, it's like the Wembley idea again. It's the legitimacy. This is an event. Super Bowl gets Beyonce. We have, you know, whoever. So it doesn't matter. But when it's done right, like you could see the buzz that the NRL got off like Macklemore a couple of years ago, which were for reasons that had nothing to do with Macklemore's star power, really. But it can build you that buzz and it really worked didn't it yeah and give you credibility i think it would uh it would hurt legitimacy but i don't think it would be missed that much either <laughs> but no, diana no. rice i mean stadium concerts you know, of any kind are impossible pretty much but to just do it with one cordless mic on the, <laughs> the field in the wind <laughs> which she barely bothered to put in front of her mouth for the whole yeah, performance yeah. of the song and the, the sort of semi-jeering belligerent english crowd response as well like oh I was actually surprised by some little lads in in the stands who seemed to be really getting into it. Like they seem like they just you know come from a rave with their whistles, but I saw some enthusiasm. <laughs> but um, Diana Ross is such a pro. Like, but she mightn't have been. She might have been lip syncing or whatever. But she was really putting her back into it to try and make it as good as possible. Yeah. So let's get to the game itself. We've got status quo to come, yeah. Uh, Yeah, so I should have mentioned they also played the final. So along with the brass bands, you had status quo. So Which watching that disappointed me because I love status quo as well. But just I just thought of that Coles ad and what sellout hacks they are. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get to the game. Uh, I want to start with the English squad. What do you make of this English team? I thought it was a rip-snorting, probably all-time English squad almost getting there. I kind of feel it was we'd come out of that, and this was, to me, like just a little less. It wasn't quite there with the 88 Gary Schofield era, but it was bloody good squad. They had a yeah. killer centres, killer backline, two great halfbacks. Andy Farrell was class all throughout this tournament. Wasn't he? Like I always thought he was overrated from what I saw of all the later test matches, but this one here, he, he showed what he was worth. And watching him in this tournament, he's kind of like the prototypical modern lock. Yeah, he was ahead of his time, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. But so England did go on and win that game 20-16, to 16, which that scoreline flattered the Australians who scored a late try to make it respectable. Like, you want, you want to talk about important victory. Yeah. Like, how important it was for England to win that game and build the buzz that had been lacking in the lead-up to the tournament. But they looked really good doing it, too. Yeah. And if you're an, an ARL supporter or involved with the team, you would have been thinking, shit, we're in trouble here. But every single series, they win the first game. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it really did expose the lack of top talent in that Australian team. Uh, in the lead-up, England came out and said that they were prepared to bait John Hopawati, which they did so to success. Well, I think that was some good homework done by yeah. the English. <laughs> I was actually surprised by Tim Brasher. He had a shocker in that opening game. I remember um, death riding him because I wanted Mullins to be there and going like, you know, he's a class below, you know. <laughs> well, I will say it was an uncharacteristic game because... The other games I watched of him during that series, he was great. Yeah, safe as houses, as per usual. Yeah. 
just in general on the game, it, it felt much closer to rugby union in that era still than just two entirely different sports now. Mm. It just had that open, more open feel to it. The players were smaller. Yeah. But beyond the result, I think it was a really great game. It was a very entertaining game. So from an English public who were more familiar with rugby union, were just coming off, you know, not far coming off the rugby union world cup. I think the way that game was played was also important in building some buzz for the tournament. Absolutely. It always surprises me that it doesn't completely switch rugby union fans the minute they watch a rugby league game, but yeah. that one would have gone a long way to doing that. And beyond that, that Australia-England game, the best thing to come out of that first group round was Tonga pushing New Zealand all the way to the limit. They ended up losing 25 to 24 in injury time, which just an aside, that was another weird thing watching these games, like having injury time. Yeah. It's quite exciting, though. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, um, this was like before the Tongan Revolution, and this was the hugest of near upsets. Especially when, when you think about this current iteration of the Tongan team, it's built on the back of some transcendent generational talents deciding to pledge their allegiance to Tonga. If you look at this 95 squad, the team that ran out against New Zealand was Asaramoni, Una Tofa, Tavita Vaikona, Philip Howlett. Jimmy Viacoso, Angelo Dimmick, Willie Wolfgram, Martin Masella, Dwayne Mann, Lee Hansen, George Mann, Solomon Hamono, Arwen Gutenbeil. Yeah. But like not a particularly star-studded team. Just all heart. I think part of it speaks of where New Zealand were at. It wasn't the strongest New Zealand team. But for Tonga's first game in a World Cup, to go that close, you know, they were leading late, could very easily have won that game. Yeah, it was magic. So that series saw the end of... Gary Freeman's New Zealand career. He managed to get a game at hooker the next round against Papua New Guinea. But for that first game, he was overlooked in favour of Stacey Jones, who made his New Zealand debut in that game. So a changing of the guard there. And that was uh, inevitable. And Gary Freeman handled the situation pretty badly by all reports. Uh, ended up having a sook and leaving camp when he was omitted from the semi-final team. Uh, so New Zealand captain Matthew Ridge had this to say about it. The whole time the team's being picked, I'm watching Gary. And when his name's not read out, I can almost see the steam shooting out of his ears. So we get on the bus to go to training. When we arrive, everyone gets off except Gary. He's too busy on his mobile phone yapping away. And he stays sitting in the bus yapping on his phone throughout training. We're all running around the field looking at him thinking, what are you doing, mate? We can see he's spitting the dummy. But his dummy hasn't just gone 10 metres. It's gone the length of the flipping football field. And you can imagine how that makes guys like Henry Paul, Gene Amu, Stacey Jones feel. They can't even look at him. They're thinking, oh no, here comes Gary. He must think I'm an arsehole. If you get dropped, the first thing... <laughs> If you get dropped, the first thing you've got to do is go up to the guy who took your place, no matter how much you hate it. Bite the bullet and say, good on you, mate. I'm behind you 100%. But if you mistake, I'm waiting. It's just a way of making it all cool. But what Gary does, sulking in the bus, just makes everyone feel terrible. <laughs> that book's a masterpiece. I know. Like, Forgive the, the lengthy quotes, but any chance I have to read the unfiltered thoughts of Matthew Ridge, I'm going to take that opportunity. I love how he puts words into the people's mouths, like how he perceives them. Yeah. And he's thinking, you're kidding, aren't you, Ridgie? <laughs> 
And so this and other incidents like it caused some disharmony within the New Zealand team with the players who were excluded from, you know, the team lists forming their own little clique. So Gary Freeman was one of those, along with Daryl Halligan, John Timu, John Lomax as well. I really think Freeman should be held in the utmost contempt for that. The team sport and behaving like that is just despicable. Yeah, especially for someone who was New Zealand's most capped test player at that point. Yeah. The legend of New Zealand Rugby League. You can imagine a Queenslander doing that on the origin side, like just unthinkable. Yeah. So it led to an altercation between Ridge and Freeman, which again, I'll tell in Matthew Ridge's words. So we head back to the hotel after training and Wiz bails me up. You told Frank to pick Henry, he says. It was your bloody idea. And I just say, listen, mate, Frank's the coach. Frank picks the team. Frank asked my opinion. I gave it to him. And mate, I thought you played well, but I thought you gave away a lot of penalties. And I think Henry can offer us something more against Australia. And that's what I told Frank. But I didn't pick the team, mate. I have no say on who's picked in the team. But if the coach asks me what I think, I'm going to tell him. To Gary's credit, he wears it. He says, okay, fair enough. But he's still obviously not happy. (laughs) So basically, he's told him not to pick him in not so many words, and then he just wore it. (laughs) But he was a penalty machine. He was known for it. Yeah. And then when you're known for it anyway, and you're coming to the end of your career, when you lose that half step at pace, you don't have the same intensity. That's where those lazy kind of things creep into anyone's game anyway. So it becomes a real liability. Really disappointed with that story. I was a massive Freeman fan. Disappointed. I wouldn't say it's particularly surprising to me. But so back to Tonga, after the heartbreak of that near miss against New Zealand, their tournament was actually ended against one of their fellow minnows in the next game, drawing 28 all with Papua New Guinea, who'd come back from a 20-0 deficit. So that was on the back of Adrian Lamb, who gave a man-of-the-match performance. So that was another big positive of the tournament, Papua New Guinea making a real show. He was outstanding in that Adrian Lamb, Queensland's finest, but yeah. that was the start of the PNG revolution too, and, and now they're everybody's second favourite team. Yeah, exactly. So they put in a credible performance against New Zealand, ended up losing that game 22-6. to It was the start of Stanley Jean's career in England. One of several players from the you know Pacific Oceania teams who put on a show for some of the English club sides and, and managed to become a you know a legend in English football because of that. It changed a lot of lives this World Cup. Yeah, but legend has it he celebrated his forty fifth birthday that day as well. <laughs> <laughs> and the other Pacific team that really made a splash was Western Samoa who were coached by Graham Lowe, who it was his first coaching appointment after a series of health issues that included two strokes, a brain hemorrhage, thrombosis, lung clots, and a triple heart bypass. No good. And you could see this was something he really needed. He spoke of the enthusiasm the players had and just the positive spirit, the environment he found himself in. So another really heartwarming story of the World Cup was this Western Samoa run, which again, kind of came out of nowhere. I can't stress enough how different it was back then. They were not even considered minnows almost, and and now they're powerhouses. Yeah, yeah. And they put these huge performances in Tonga and Western Samoa. Yeah, exactly. There was one part on on the coverage that I uh, wanted to bring up, and it's still in the games of his day, but it was even worse back then, was Ray French was in the studio talking, the former St. Helens and Witness player, and he's talking about the Island Boys and their, in quotes, natural flair. And the yeah. way they play the game just reminded me of Joey now with the indigenous flair where it's a positive, but it just comes off so like 
yeah, so yeah. negative. The way it was sort of phrased in this commentary was like, especially with an English accent, like this uh, imperialist vibe to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess in his defense is what we're saying, that this was all so new. It was the first time a lot of people watching the games were seeing teams like Tonga and Samoa play. It was, yeah, it was brand new, so you get some pass, but the fact it's still in the game now is amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And the fact that I do it myself is, is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I had Ray French in, in my talking points because I, I actually love his commentary. Yeah, me too. It was really good coverage, in fact. Yeah, yeah, I, I loved it. The English commentators have always had much more positivity and passion in their delivery. Yeah, you could really see that in the final in particular, I thought. You know, it, it matched the occasion. If you ever have a person learning English and you want to teach them the words world class, just tune them into English rugby league. <laughs> you know speaking of of english rugby league or, or british rugby league outside of the three established powers the fourth team in the semi-finals was wales who were only a few years into their existence as a separate entity so i love this squad i, I love how they performed at this cup because my uncle's welsh and you know i've got a bit of affinity for them but um i've been to wales reminds me of newcastle people wise but it's made me sad about how far they've fallen since 95. And how instantly it all happened. Like the rise and fall is quite remarkable. You've got this team. There's quite so many great English comp players in it. Yeah. Like, you had players who had already made their names, players like Jonathan Davies. Awesome. And then you had the next generation coming through, Yeston Harris, Kieran Cunningham as well. So a team that was really exciting to watch were coming on to what could have been a peak, making the semi-final. I don't think they were ever a danger of winning that game against England, but they put on a show. They made it a genuine competition. Yeah, and they played a good brand of football, very tough. Yeah, and then, as I said, almost immediately it fell apart. And I could be completely wrong about this. I, I haven't done the extensive research, but you have to think that the rugby union going professional was the chief factor if you look at that squad well jonathan davies was going back to union directly after this world cup which was a huge blow yeah even though it was the end of his career but i mean still he was the face of the sport there yeah it was a blow because of that so it was getting to the end of his career he was 33 at that point he'd done his best work already so at the same time that wales was progressing through the world cup and it was a really feel-good story all the coverage was dominated by a public battle for the services of Jonathan Davies between Warrington and Cardiff Rugby Union. There's only going to be one winner out of that battle. Exactly, and Davies is one thing. So of the 16 players in that semi-final squad, 11 of them left for Rugby Union between 96 and 97. Diabolical. Yeah, and to be fair, a lot of those players started in Union. So of those 16 players, there were only three that had no Union at all in their football careers so in many ways union were just getting their own back but it still hurts us i still hold out hope for wales even though it's even more of a union country than new zealand but to see how strong new zealand are in rugby league now i still hold out hope yeah one yeah. day one day we'll yeah. get there <laughs> and speaking of one day the other really big innovation for the world cup was running an emerging nations world cup alongside the main event so you had the US, Russia, the Cook Islands, who ended up winning the whole thing, uh, as well as Scotland, Ireland, Moldova, and Morocco uh, in a tournament. I was so proud of that because of how well the Cook Islands have come along since that 95 Emerging Nations. Then I had to double-check Moldova 
I didn't even know it was a country for a start. <laughs> They're playing rugby league. It's amazing. Uh, disappointing part of that was Ireland. And they actually made the final against the Cook Islands and had the same thing with some of their best players going over to Union shortly after the tournament. I think the Irish fear changed more than Novocastrian, so I don't think we're going to get them anytime soon. But <laughs> The biggest disappointment for the World Cup for me was South Africa. I mean, they shouldn't have been there. They should have been in the emerging nations for a start. But No, yeah. The fact that we haven't progressed, well, we've actually regressed since then. They're getting beat 86 to 6, and we've actually regressed since then with South Africa. Yeah. But I mean, the promising thing is now you can have a 10 team World Cup and you're not going to get anyone losing 80 0, I don't think. Yeah, it's great. But as encouraging as all that is, in the end, you're left with the big boys. Talked about the England Wales semi final, the other semi finals between Australia and New Zealand. Another really good game. This was marred in the lead-up by a pay dispute within the New Zealand team that threatened to derail everything. Is it a Rugby League World Cup without a pay dispute? No. So the aforementioned Graham Carden had announced to the New Zealand players that the money they'd been promised, which I think was $2,000 a game, they were actually going to get half of that. And as Captain Matthew Ridge's job was to liaise between management and the players to come to an agreement that would suit both parties... So explain that to me again. They promised one thing and then said you're going to get half of it. Is that the, the gist of it? Yep. Yep. That's exactly what happened. So how does this happen every single goddamn time? I know. It's absolutely ludicrous. And I love what the New Zealand players did, in particular the leadership of Matthew Ridge. So again, I'm going to tell it in his words. I warn him, the boys are going to spew over this. I mean spew. <laughs> I'm spewing myself. I go back... <laughs> I go back and tell the boys, and surprise, surprise, they spew. Steve Kearney says, look, man, we can't let them get away with this. It's just not cool. We can't let them do business like that. Tell Graham he's got to come up with the money we're promised. We call a team meeting. The senior Kiwis have just about had a gutful of being dicked around by the New Zealand Rugby League over the years. They aren't in the mood for being dicked around again. Guys like Kevin Iroh, who have a long history with the Kiwi jersey, get up and speak. They talk about how the New Zealand League has always promised the players the world and delivered nothing like it. The general theme of, from everyone is, enough, we're always being shat on. This is it. We're going to stand up for ourselves. So I get up and say, okay, how are you going to play this, guys? If we're going to stand up for ourselves, we're going to have to say we're not playing. That's the only way you'll stand up for yourselves. You can't just moan and sulk and then go out and play, because then they've won. They say, righto, let's not play. And I'm thinking, oh shit, I'm blown away by the enormity of what we're about to do. We're trying to set a precedent for future guys coming into the Kiwis. We're telling the board, you've got to stick by it. We don't care if all of a sudden your finances change or you give us this excuse or that excuse. If you commit to something, that's it. We just lambasted uh, Gary Freeman for his behavior. <laughs> We're cheering on the squad for striking. Different circumstances. Did you find out what was their excuse for halving the money? Yeah, so Graham Carden basically just said, we can't afford to give you what we agreed to give you with no further explanation. It's almost like a um, shakedown. It's like, it's insane. Yeah. Maybe Arco was right about him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Hey? Um, but in the end, the tactic worked. So Ridge said, in the end, we've got management by the nuts. We know it and so do they. Super League can't afford to have us boycott the semi-final of their showpiece. It'll look awful for them. But for us, it's a war against Graham Card and nobody else. Just crazy. And the fact we see it every year in every international series is some team getting dicked over by the board. Yeah, exactly. And to this day, in the end, there was an altercation, like a meeting between the team and Graham Carden. 
which got really heated. And again, this is Matthew Ridge's words. I don't know if this is a direct quote or just the words that he put in Graham Carden's mouth. But in Ridge's account, the culmination of the meeting was Graham Carden saying, okay, the fact is we're going to pay you the money, but it's disgraceful that it's come to this. (laughs) (laughs) What's better than rugby league? (laughs) And so we get to the semi-final themselves and... Ridge said that the dispute had a galvanizing effect, uh, to use another great rugby league word, on the team. And he said for the first time in the tournament, he actually felt them bonding, like they all came together over this issue. It takes a near strike to make them bond and play hard for the country. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very good point. Uh, But play hard they did forcing Australia to extra time, having a real chance to win in regulation, which we'll get to. But just before we get to how the game finished, maybe the only thing better than Matthew Ridge writing his book in his own voice is giving Terry Hill a cameo to do the same. So Terry Hill actually got sin-binned late in regulation time during this match. uh, And he talks about the incident in Matthew Ridge's book. I think the one where I get him, where I can actually claim a really solid knockout victory, is the semi-final of the World Cup. I admit it, Ridgey really gets to me in this game, and I have to fight back. It's a real epic sledging battle, this one. There's eight minutes left on the clock, Australia leading 20-10, to 10, and this imbecile referee has ruled me offside. But he shouldn't restart until all the players are back onside. That's the rule. So anyway, one of the Kiwis is running at me, and I've tackled him. And the referee goes and gives me 10 in the simbin for a professional foul. I say, you're kidding. And then Richie, right from the back, storms all the way up. Get off the park, you bloody idiot. Go on. Get off hill, you clown. Off, off. Hurry up, you <laughs> fool. I look at him and say, go and get fucked, Richie. So I'm sitting on the sideline for the last 10 minutes of the game watching the clock tick by. We go into extra time. I'm back on the field by now and I score. And I just open slather on Ridgie. I absolutely attack him. I say everything you can think of. You can't kick. You're a freak. I attack him madly. It's frightening. And that really gets to him. He's had a lot of pressure on him for those kicks because obviously they could have won them the game. And it couldn't be worse for Matthew that I'm the one who scored for Australia. Obviously, he's thinking, you bastard. And I'm just driving it home to him afterwards. He's absolutely shattered. (laughs) Are they like kindred spirits or what? I know, I know. Just reading that, you're just like, oh, imagine playing that manly team with both of those blokes in it. (laughs) So he's got the kick at 20-all in this, Ridgie from the sideline. Yep. And he absolutely shanks it. Probably, like, you know, Matthew Ridge, one of the top three goal kickers in the world at the time. This has to be the worst kick of his career. I mean, it would have been, what, 50-50 chance, maybe 60-40 for him to get it yeah. from the sideline? Yeah. Didn't even give it a shot. Didn't no. even make the goal pass. Yeah. So his account was that there was a lot of wind around and he just decided to take the wind out of the equation by hitting it hard and low but basically completely misfired and as you said didn't even make the 10 meter line like it basically went sideways uncharacteristic but abominable timing yeah yeah but then a a minute later comes very close to winning it before extra time with a 42 meter field goal attempt left footed yeah left footed that all but shaved the post, like very close to winning it there and then. But um, this is what gets me about the Australian dominance of rugby league. That we talk about, like you know, they've been unassailable for forty years. No one's beat them, you know, unbeatable. It's all true; they haven't been beaten. But every single series, they're down to the wire in, in one game or another. You yeah, know, like, yeah. 
it's always been just by the skin of the teeth. We just find a way to get it done or they find a way to beat themselves. But it's not like we've been winning 50-0 for 40 years. No, no. Yeah, very true. So if the Kiwis beat us there, then the ARL look like complete buffoons. Yeah, definitely. Like not making the final on top of losing to both England and New Zealand in the same tournament would have been diabolical for the ARL. Conversely, winning it is equally as diabolical in my view because it just shows how weak the other teams are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our backup team beats them all, so you can't win either way. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it was a bit no win. But beyond the result, Australian management and their coach in particular uh, did themselves a big disservice in some of their behaviour in this semi final in particular. Uh, that started with the overuse of trainers which Bob Fulton was a real pioneer of like I think in our 87 recap we talked about the way he was you know implementing walkie-talkies and trainers during the game then and by this point it was really getting up the noses of officials fans the opposing teams Uh, this was even more the case when they were wearing these bright red jackets which not only did they stand out on the field but they also had Winfield loudly emblazoned on them because Winfield were the Australian sponsors. So contravening the BBC regulations, the laws of the tournament, they were, you know, flouting the rules and having their trainers run on in these red Winfield jackets. Freaking Winfield. <laughs> um, yeah, like the trainers have uh, been a blight for everyone a day, annoying to all and sundry, but what shocked me was they made Aaron Raper be one. Yeah, yeah. Is that not like condescending or...? Yeah, it's really odd anyway. Like, I wonder how Aaron Raper felt about that. Like, I know he didn't have too much else to do, and the squad is a team beyond the 17 players playing, but it's... He seems like the sort of guy that would bite his tongue and just do the best for the team, to me. Like, Mm. to me, that's just such a slap in the face. Like, basically saying, we don't think you're good enough to play, but you can be a trainer. Yeah, exactly. Like, he shouldn't have been put in that position. But all of that is nothing compared to a quite hilarious but shameful incident which took place in the aftermath of Australia's semi-final victory, where angry at the refereeing, Bob Fulton came out angrily against referees director Greg McCallum. So the direct quote about the refereeing in the semi-final was, it's a carve-up, you're responsible, and it's a slide on your name. <laughs> I love that like, such a choose phrasing, like it's a carve-up, can be like a dagger <laughs> to the heart of a rugby league person. But they know exactly what it means. Yeah. <laughs> And so the situation got even worse when Bob Fulton's wife, Anne, decided to get involved at the Marriott Hotel uh, where McCallum was hosting a dinner with uh, some other referees and their wives. In McCallum's words, the nature of it was a lot of foul language being used. I resented it greatly. I've done nothing wrong and I wasn't going to walk away when I was entertaining referees and their wives. I've lodged a complaint with Ken Arthurson. He's aware of the situation. From now on, it's a matter of what action I decide to take. I mean, getting the wives involved in abuse is so rugby league, but it's just inappropriate to the max. Well, when you say getting the wives involved, I don't think Anne needed an invitation. So on reports that McCallum will be seeking disciplinary action against Bob Fulton or indeed her, her response was, let him try. (laughs) And on the incident himself, he said... There are a few words exchanged, but nothing serious. I'm not the sort of person to use vile language. It really is a bit weak of him to run to the press when he feels he's been wronged, though. I hardly know him and absolutely did not insult him. Who does he think he is? If everyone who had a disagreement with someone else started talking about solicitors, then the world would be a pretty sick place. (laughs) And when the Telegraph Mirror asked for further comment, she said, 
Poor little man. I have no comment to make. Thank you for calling. So she feels aggrieved that the person she abused at his function is lodged a complaint against her. And why is Anne Fulton attacking McCallum about a 7-1 second half penalty count anyway? Like, leave that to Bozo. <laughs> and again, this is from the old show, but if you commit seven penalties and you're blown for seven, yeah. <laughs> it's not really the ref's fault, is it? Well, that's what started it all. So Russell Smith was the referee. McCallum was referee's boss. And his direct quote was, the heavy penalty count in the second half, 6-1 against Australia, was mainly due to their players holding down opponents at the play the ball. And then went on to say that Russell Smith actually lost the opportunity to referee the grand final because he didn't penalise them more for holding down in the play the ball. So yet again, it's just obnoxious rugby league behaviour. Yeah, exactly. And the way it shook out was the International Board's Disciplinary Committee threatened to launch an investigation. I'll read the account as it appears in Roy Masters' book, Inside Out. After conceding that the Disciplinary Committee may be powerless to act against Fulton and realising that the coach's behaviour had intimidated tournament officials into appointing his preferred choice of referee for the final, the penny finally dropped with Lindsay. He said to Fulton, You've got what you want, haven't you? There was a long pause before Fulton offered a soft, Yes. <laughs> It's Fulton's MO that he seems to criticise referees more after wins than losses. Like, his criticism of referees seemed to be quite tactical. Like, you can see it here. He got his wish in having Russell Smith removed from the final. It's why he's a great coach, though. He he gets it done no matter what, no matter how many uh, obnoxious things have to be done. Yeah. So, he got what he wanted, Australia in the final. They end up winning that game 16-8. I loved watching this. What were your thoughts watching it back? Yeah, agreed. And I mean, Fittler and Johns, just class. They were both amazing. What really struck me was Fittler's, and this was all throughout the tournament, both of them, but Fittler in particular, his ability to unleash Menzies. Like it was. This was his coming of age as a ball player. Yeah. He had the running game early and he had a bit of ball skill in the back row. But as a proper 5'8", ball playing 5'8", this was his coming of age party. Yeah, but particularly with Menzies, it was like beyond Cliffy levels, the way he managed to put him into holes. It was amazing. And just watching Menzies in that tournament as well. So Fittler was man of the series. Yeah, Menzies wasn't far behind. Yeah. I listened to a lot of the Bill Simmons basketball podcasts, and one of his terms when analyzing a particular player is is he a one of one you know like is he the only one of his type when i watch menzies in the 90s i struggle to think of a comparison incredible and and it's so funny because at the time and this was you know my manly bias showing through or anti-manly bias but i remember at the time just going oh menzies you know like he's he's a center he's not a second roller and I thought, well, how about don't worry about the number on him on his back <laughs> yeah, and yeah. focus on the fact that he's hitting holes at 40 kilometers and running 70 meters, yeah, yeah. you know, beating wingers to score under the posts, you know? We covered this in the um, Hall of Fame discussions, but like the knock on him was that he ran wide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he ran wide through holes uh, and created about 160 tries for a back row. Yeah, so Fittler was like phenomenal in this series. And Johns, this was the moment where he, you know, after an underwhelming Origin series, I don't think anyone questioned whether he was a class player, but this was the moment where it was like, oh, he's this good. Now, what surprised me was I just always thought from debut to, to the finish, he was just, you know, amazing. But he had to learn the ropes like everybody else 
even the greatest player ever had to learn the ropes like everybody else. And it, it took him a year and a half to become that guy. Yeah, and it's funny, like, the way he talks about it, saying that he felt like a fraud. You know, saying, I was intimidated by the people around me and where I was in the game just then. Because I watched the game so much when I was in my teens. I just thought blokes like Brad Fittler were on another planet, even though he's the best laid-back bloke you could meet. He was the Australian captain and a superstar, and I thought I was in the same team as him on false pretenses. Proven otherwise in subsequent years. <laughs> but how funny that it was seasoned veteran, 23-year-old Brad Fittler bringing up inexperienced rookie 21-year-old Andrew Johns. Like, it's crazy to think he was 23 at that World Cup. Yeah, and just become a real man, a leader. But what occurred to me, looking at this squad... Was this the start of the party boy rot in the Australian team, culminating in the Talus in tears, they're all doing drugs uh, scenario in the late 90s? I kind of think there's little doubt of that, right? You know, Andrew Johnson has admitted it himself, the way he handled his success. And in Brad Fittler's book, he talks about the team going to the church, the, you know, the famous English nightclub yeah. in the aftermath. In his words, I finished up on a gantry that traversed the length of the building and overlooked all the drinkers. I was pouring beer down their throats from a great height and they didn't let a drop hit the ground. The team made its way onto the stage and everyone was diving off it into the ground. So the team was certainly filled with players who enjoyed themselves. <laughs> but back to John's on-field, maybe the, the stain of this tournament was the fact that this was where John's at hooker began. Yeah, and it was awful. And I see a lot of comments, I'm assuming, from younger people who see how many games he played at hooker compared to halfback and try to diminish him as a result, saying, oh, like Jeff Toovey kept him out of the halfback spot. Well, how good could he have been? And it's, I'll just say, you really reveal yourself to be a simpleton with comments like that. <laughs> but like beyond the fact that he was clearly an all-time player, no matter what jersey he was wearing, he was barely at dummy half like over the course of that series. That's what annoyed me the most about it. It wasn't even really a hooker does pointless. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. And like the argument that it was because of his defense, it's like, well, I don't know. I'm not smart enough about rugby league strategy to know why it matters. But just like if Jeff Toovey's doing all the work at dummy half, just make him hooker and Johns can defend where is best for the team. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's a blight. It's an unnecessary... It's not even a blight. It's, it doesn't mean anything to real rugby league people, but it's an unnecessary um, confusion, <laughs> the John's yeah. hooker bullshit. But yeah. if he had played hooker from the start of his debut to his end, he would have been the greatest player of all time still. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in the wash-up, Australia win the tournament. The ARL get their victory. As a whole, though, I think the tournament has to be viewed as an overwhelming success, particularly how it was looking a month before. It could have been a disaster. It could have been much, much worse, and it couldn't have been much better. That's how I'd like to put it. Yeah. But again, just in closing, what I'm left with is this feeling of sadness that we had it all right there. And for all these reasons, like it just fell apart almost instantly. It's just another 20-year sandbag the rugby league's put around its own neck, you know? But that's all I've got to say about this. Have you got any closing thoughts? No, just I want to reiterate what I said at the start. Is like I had negative memories about it because of what I consider the blight on the records and derailing careers and what have you. We've discussed it at length, but watching it back, um, overwhelmingly positive feeling now. Yeah, yeah. I've I got to say, it, it's some great football. You can get a lot of these games in full on YouTube. Highly recommend going back and revisiting some of them. Yeah, some spectacular 
play across the course of the tournament. So I won't give a book plug this week because uh, a, a lot of the research for this chapter was from those you know newspaper accounts, particularly the English ones. So uh, in lieu of a book, I would say get to YouTube and uh, watch as much of the 95 World Cup as you can. Uh, I'm sitting here thinking, I mean, he's just quoted from Ridgey's book. He must be kidding. He's not going to give him a recommendation. <laughs> I think we've already given it to Ridge once before, haven't we? But <laughs> it should go without saying that. I think Mick's thinking he doesn't have to give a recommendation, but I'm thinking you're kidding, aren't you, Mick? <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah. <laughs> I will give it to Ridgey then. I've barely scratched the surface of that book. So... I, I... <laughs> I can't wait until this is all done that I can actually read it from cover to cover. I've had to focus on the Super League <laughs> stuff. So that is going to be my treat to myself when we finally finish this thing. <laughs> I was going to say, this was a really fun episode, uh, the research and the watching and the chat. Yeah, it has been. So I hope you all enjoy it as well. Please let us know what you think of it. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Send us an email to the Rugby League Digest at gmail.com and we will speak to you next time. Bye-bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.